there's a there's a, a fly up here. Let's let's call it the devil fly. I was praying against it when Thomas was preaching last week. That is the same stupid fly. So here's what we're gonna do. If it like lands on my head, I'm just gonna like shake it off, and I'm gonna keep preaching, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna just keep going with that. Okay. Okay, we've been going through a series uh, called How to Believe in God, and today we're going to talk about what it means to not only rediscover the gospel, but live uh, in a continual rediscovery of the gospel day in and and day out. And we're going to center our focus this morning on this phrase that Jesus uses as quite bizarre. He says that he desires something. From, uh, from us, and he desires to give something to us, and he says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that would be enough to dwell on all day, just the depth of that statement. Um, and what we're going to discuss in this passage, I'm just skimming the surface of what I'm about to read, but I want to give you uh, an illustration of kind of the frame of mind I want us to, to get in before I read the text. You know, the, the name Tim Keller is used a lot in this church, and uh, he's, he's a big influence on how I've interpreted this, this passage. I heard a sermon he preached uh, a while ago, and it's, it's been very influential to me. But he, you know, Tim Keller gave the convocation speech when my seminary was formed. Down in Dallas, and and he said something to a group of a bunch of families and seminarians, all sorts of people, and he said this phrase that has really stuck with me. He said, "I do believe that many of you in this room can do what I've done, even in New York, even in a place that is uh, as challenging as New York." And he, and he said this. He said, "What what I do as a pastor in New York is really not that difficult." Um, and I remember getting a dinner with my friend after uh, he gave that sermon. And my buddy said, said, you know, actually, I kind of believe that, that I could do what he does. Not in some sort of, uh, I'm going to try to copy what he does way. But what he got from that sermon was that there are no experts in Christianity. Like we all start from the beginning and we stay there. And that is a perpetual everyday thing. That no one's further along than the next person. You're either in Christ or, or you're not. Now, up to this point in Matthew, the book of Matthew, what's been challenged uh, is Jesus's authority. And so in our in our text, what Jesus is proving is that he has authority to do two basic things. To, he has authority to forgive people and he has authority to break up foundations of which you built your life on. Like he, he has the authority to break, to break that up. And so uh, let's look at God's word and hear God's word this morning. Th- these are eternal words. Um, these words last uh, forever. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I never told you where this was. Matthew 9, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Let me read that last verse again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blasphemy. 
But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many of the tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why do you why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine will spill out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. It's our practice here at Redeemer. Because those words are eternal words, they're God's words. um, We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would make them alive to us. The Holy Spirit is also God. And he works in tandem with his word so that when we read it, it can get into our hearts and turn us on. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this room. And it's so easy to walk through our lives without remembering that you're here and yet you sustain us. You give us each breath. Um, And so, Lord, we praise you for every specific detail of today. We thank you for the difficulties with technology. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you that each particular circumstance that you placed in our lives right now um, is, is meant to incline our hearts towards you And so, Lord, with those of us who are hurting, with those of us who have very, very hard stories, um, that it's difficult to see that. I pray that you, by the Spirit, would show us um, that you have come to melt our hearts, to expand us, um, to come into us, to unite yourself to us, to engulf us with your love. And so show us that today. In Christ's name, amen. There's a, a man named John Wesley. He's the beginner of the Methodist denomination. I don't know if we have any Methodists in the room. Um, but John Wesley was an amazing theologian, amazing uh, communicator of the gospel. And he moved to my home state, Georgia, to become a missionary to the indigenous peoples there in Georgia. And he wrote this. It's not politically correct, um, but this is what he wrote in his journal. 
He said, it's not two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why would I least of all suspect that I, who went to America to convert others, was never myself converted to God? Now, I can't help but to think that if a theologian as renowned as John Wesley, if a missionary, um, if a pastor was doing a lot for God, sacrificing a lot for God, gave his whole life away for God to go be a missionary, if he was struggling, uh, not, not with like the essentials of Christianity, but, but he actually didn't believe. Like he wasn't converted as he was going on his way to convert people. Um, my guess is that some of us in here, myself included, might be in the same spot. This passage shows us what it means to rediscover the gospel and that it's rooted in Jesus's authority to to forgive and to break up old foundations. And that is a perpetual daily rediscovery of what it is that Christianity teaches. And so let's walk through the passage here in verses one through three. We see that Jesus does something strange with this paralytic and getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some of the people they brought to him were a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's not what he asked for. Um, let's say let's say Stacy. You let, let's say you hit Jeremy in the face. Let's say you walked across the aisle and you punched him in the face. And I said, you know what, Stacy? I forgive you. I forgive you. Um, what would what would y'all say? It's like you didn't hit me. You hit you hit Jeremy, right? He's he's the offended party, and so he's the only one that has the right to to forgive. That's how the Pharisees are hearing Jesus. You walk up into somebody's life and, and you say, I, "I forgive you." Um, A, that's not what this paralytic is asking for. And B, they understand what he's doing. He's claiming to be God right there. He's claiming to be the offended party. That's what they were thinking. This guy's blaspheming. And we have this very insightful statement. And this, this will actually help you unlock many of the reasons why behind Jesus' miracles and healing in verse 6 says, uh, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, rise, uh, pick up your bed and go home. The reason why Jesus does miracles, the reason why he heals people is so that you would know and that I would know that he has authority to forgive sins, that it points somewhere. It's not arbitrary. And Jesus does heal this guy. He's like a theologian and and an activist. But the reason why he... Uh, the reason why he heals this paralytic is to show that this paralytic has a deeper problem than just not being able to walk. You know, I, like they didn't have prosthetics back then. They didn't have like wheelchairs. He would have been a nuisance to his family, this paralytic. Like he couldn't just go to the market. He had to like use people to do everything. And he came to Jesus like, like many of us come to Jesus. He just wanted an easier life. He wanted more comfort. He wanted Jesus to change a particular circumstance in his life that would help him function better in society. 
And, and Jesus gives him that, but he also gives him much more. He gives him something underneath all that. And uh, let's just go right into application. You need to think about your life. Um, the, the things in particular that you wish God would alter to make your life more comfortable, to make your life less painful, to make your life uh, less dependent on other people. You know, different job, more money, obedient kids. God, would you get my parents off my back? Uh, God, please give me a boyfriend or girlfriend that can actually last. You know, stuff, stuff like that. Now, we would never say that those things uh, would make us ultimately complete and, and functionally satisfy us, but that is definitely what dominates our minds in this world, the things that are, are right in front of us. And so when Jesus tells this guy, my, my son, I forgive you, that's pointing to the fact that forgiveness is the thing that will ultimately satisfy human beings. Forgiveness. Now why? Or how? It's because forgiveness, it's what's necessary to bring us back to God. And Jesus knows that circumstances and stuff isn't going to make us happy. Only God can make us happy. Now one of the problems with human beings, now many people think that this is like a problem with like modern 21st century people. That's not true because it's here in the Bible one of the problems with human beings throughout the centuries is that we don't think we need forgiveness. It's not just a modern problem. At least we don't need forgiveness as much as other people need it. And if Jesus walked into this room, this is how you test yourself to see where you're at. If Jesus walked into this room and he said, look, I will give you the thing that you really want. I'll give you a job that you're content with. I give you so much money that your grandparent or your grandkids don't even have to worry. Or you can have forgiveness. You know, which would you choose? Honestly. That's part of what this first section is teaching us. We're, we are all the paralytic. The Pharisees are watching this and Jesus is showing, showing them what, what he's doing so that they see themselves in the paralytic. And Jesus has come to offer something much, much deeper than our surface level desires. This is hard for me. I don't know about y'all. It's very hard for me. In this section, Jesus shows us uh, what it means to, to heal somebody internally with somebody who's got a physical problem. But in this next section, he, he's interacting with somebody who has a different type of problem. It's not a physical one. It's a social one. He's shown us how to interact with somebody who's basically a social and political pariah on society. That's who Matthew is. Verse 19 through 13, Matthew, tax collector, um, unanimously hated. Easy to despise. You know, you need to think, I, I, I want you to get this. Think like CEO of the most profitable porn company in the world. You pick whatever group you most despise. And there Matthew is. And let's just, let's just sit in this for a second. Jesus calls somebody like that to be his disciple. And so it means to be the church to be called out by God. 
This is hard. Um, this is why ministry is hard. I remember noticing something in my previous ministry when I was back in Texas. I did a college, college ministry for a decade. And I began to notice something about halfway through that time when a student would get lost in the drug scene or get pregnant or go off to some other ideology besides Christianity. I remember feeling uh, mad about it. And uh, during that time, I read this verse in this section where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what I began to realize is that I, you know, I had spent so much time in prayer and loving these students and, and the return on the investment wasn't coming back. And what I began to realize is that I, I actually wanted my students to sacrifice. I didn't want students who needed this Jesus at all. And so it was making me, it was making me angry. And the beautiful thing is like when you're in that spot, just like John Wesley, you can rediscover the gospel again for yourself. You know how it goes, maybe in your own life. Somebody that you love goes down a path of destruction. And you're watching it. And it's hard. And what are, what, what's your prayer for them? Lord, please draw them back. Lord, please uh, show them the, the freedom of what it means to like follow your rules. That's what my prayers are like. They, they were not. Lord, please show them mercy. I don't think I wanted mercy. I wanted people that you could look at and, and people say, man, the Lord's at work. Look at how much they're sacrificing for God. I was... I was wanting God to work in my students, and, and what began to happen is that he, he began to work in me. <laughs> he began to change me because my priorities were backwards. Um, I think part of the reason why Jesus says, uh, go and learn what this means, is that this, take, this takes so long to, to conclude. I mean, like, it takes years to, to understand that Jesus really does. He, he wants to show mercy. He doesn't want things from you. He just wants you. That's why he calls Matthew. Because Matthew had nothing to offer Jesus except his badness and need. And Jesus comes and says, I specifically have come into your life to love people that you despise, like Matthew, to show you how to rediscover the gospel again. That phrase in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick is more literally translated, those who are strong have no need of a physician, but those who are bad need one. And it's certainly true in my own life that when things are going well, I don't need Jesus. And when things are going bad, I start to understand who Jesus is better. That's part of why he forgives the sin of this paralytic and calls Matthew to follow him. He's saying that every human being, I mean, part of why I'm assuming, part of why you're at church today is that you want to approach God in some way. You're coming to God to at least learn about him or you want something from him 
are you want to you want to know him? Every human being, this is our instinct. We want to we want to clean up before we get in front of God. We want to do something before we approach him. And Jesus says, I am coming to you before you can do anything when you are at your worst, because that's the type of God I am. You have to start from the beginning with this God. And that's one of the fundamental hinges of Christianity. That word mercy comes from this Old Testament term called hesed. And hesed is is covenant love. It's undivided devotion, despite whether somebody reciprocates that love back to you or not. That's what he means by by mercy. And I don't know if you guys know what the dating world is like now, but it's hard. Because most people treat it like shopping. Like you're trying each other on like a pair of shoes. To see if you like the fit and look, but you're always keeping your options open, always fearing that somebody's going to throw you off and turn aside. And the reason why that drives human beings crazy is because you are not meant to live like that. You are meant to have covenant love. Covenant love is binding yourself to someone no matter what happens in the future. So if the shoe gets sick, you're there. If the shoe's body changes, you're there. If it turns out to be a very angry pair of shoes, hesed is undivided devotion to another person, whether they reciprocate that love back or not. Now listen, Jesus says, this is how I relate to you. He says, it doesn't matter if you change. Doesn't matter if I'm getting something back from this. I'm bound to you and I will never let go. Mark Twain said if Christianity were based on merit, uh, you would you would stay and your dog would go to heaven. <laughs> now there's two two tests to there's a bunch of tests to figure out if, you're, if you believe this or not in your own life. But one way you can figure this out is um, you're freed up to not take yourself so seriously. You're free to be weak, limit, limited, to not know everything. If belief in God isn't based on how much you do or don't do for God... Uh, people like Matthew get in, uh, well, then you're free to admit that you're a beginner. You're always a beginner. Tom, Tom Gibbs, another pastor down in San Antonio who started another church called Redeemer, uh, really successful according to, like, you know, church standards. And he was given this seminar that Sarah and I were at back in the day, and there was all these young church planners, and he could feel the room kind of, like, turning him into a guru, and he said, y'all, I just want to be clear, like from day one until today, we never knew what we were doing. And I still don't. It just happened. And it stuck with me. Now he's the president of Covenant Seminary. <laughs> so that's how you got leading us. Um, are you free? To just say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. That's all right. God does. He's in charge. Another test is, is when you mess up in your life, and I mean really mess up. You hurt the people that are closest to you. Um, 
In those moments, do you feel closer or further away from God? Christianity says, if you believe in Christ, those are the moments when you actually see Jesus. But that's why he calls Matthew. Because we're all a type of Matthew. See how dangerous this is to to preach and to proclaim (laughs) to the world or to your friends? What are people going to say if you start living this out? It's like, well, our tendency is to think, we let people like this in, we're going to take advantage of God. And that's exactly right. Part of how you know this is at work in your life is, is when you're around some friends or you're around a group of people and that, that group starts bashing another group or bashing another person and you just, you just don't, you, you don't participate. Because, precisely because you see yourself like Matthew, you see yourself in your own enemies. And you're like, if they don't have hope, then I don't. So I don't have a right, I don't have the authority to talk bad about people. To gossip. Because I'm, I'm worse. This is why Jesus, he is repulsive to people that have it together. And that they're resting in, in their, their, how much they sacrifice for others or for God to, to make them right. Their old foundation is what they're standing on and Jesus is going to break that up. Meaning... This, this, again, is how it works out. The intelligent Christian, like the one that's really smart, actually feels the love of Jesus most when they fail the test. Feels, feels the love of Jesus most when, when, they, when they appear dumb. And the reason why is because their attention gets off of themselves and what they do or don't do, and it gets on to Jesus, and that's how a human being is supposed to operate. Mercy, not sacrifice. Sick, not the strong. The Christian, when they actually believe in Jesus, and this is probably the the main test, when you actually believe in Jesus, you do not beat yourself up. The voice of shame is not the voice of Christ. Christianity is the only thing in life which says that the worse it gets, the more you will actually love Jesus and what he came to do, And when this happens in somebody's life, rediscovery of the gospel becomes normalized. It becomes uh, just kind of what you do every every morning you wake up. Because my heart iced over overnight. And I wake up hating people. And Jesus needs to come in and do his work. And break up that old foundation. What I had previously built my life on gets torn down by Christ. And it's cathartic. This is what the last section, uh, 14 through 17 in our passage, is about. In verses 14 and 15, uh, these disciples of John, these are, these are folks probably called the Essenes. They were like uh, isolationists. They, they thought culture was terrible, you know, so they lived out in the hills. Um, and then the Pharisees, who were also traditional, but they lived in the city, They both come to Jesus' disciples, not Jesus, and they ask, like, hey, why don't you guys fast? Fasting was something you did when you showed that you were, like, serious about following God and believing in in him. And interestingly, Jesus answers the question, not the disciples, and he gives us three different metaphors for understanding this. In verse 15, he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus is saying 
that he is the point of fasting. That he's the point of all religious activity. And to not recognize him as such is like going to a wedding celebration and not partying. I love weddings and I love the party. And when you go to one, you need to party. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and Essenes and he's saying, y'all are at the wedding and you're fasting. And frankly, it's kind of dumb because everyone else is having a good time because I'm here. The reason why Jesus uses wedding imagery all the time is because he loves you. He wants you to marry you. If you just, you know, God, he already has everything that he could ever want. Uh, He can do anything in the world that he wants to do with or without you. Which must mean that the particular people and circumstances in your life that you don't want there are placed there because he wants his mercy to expand you, to engulf you, to swallow you. Not just so that you become his servant, but so that you'd want to. Y'all, like if you're married, you know this. Like you don't want stuff. You want the person's heart. And if somebody gives you stuff without the heart, it's just fluff. Jesus wants the heart and he uses unpleasant circumstances in our lives to show us whether we actually want him or do we just want stuff. Do we want what he can give us? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in our passage, you are in the presence of God right now and you don't recognize it precisely because you have turned religious activity into something that's godless. And you must change. That's what 16 and 17 are about. The the wineskins and the cloths he's saying to the Pharisees, you can't fit me into your old way of thinking of what's good and what's bad. I define you. I'm in charge. And if you you come to Scripture and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it, um, Jesus will explode that because you're trying to stay in charge. With Jesus, everyone starts from the beginning every day. And so the point is, when it comes to believing in God, you point to God, not yourself. You point to Jesus. Um, I'll I'll close with this example. A friend of mine... um, eulogized for his father uh, once. His name is Ben Shaw. And his dad, his dad was like really, really gifted, knew thousands, like thousands of people are at his funeral event. And uh, he got a chance to talk to his dad before he died. And he said, look, dad, um, you've done a lot in this life. You know a lot of people. But when you get over there, and he was talking about in front of God, when you get over there, do not bring your resume. Don't bring it. And what he was telling his dad is like, are you satisfied with being forgiven? Are you satisfied with being in Christ? That is what will make you at rest in front of God. Not what you've done or not done. We all come to Jesus at first wanting something besides Jesus. And the goal of life is to come to Jesus to get him. That's it.
That's what belief in God is rooted in. That you actually love God. And God can produce that in you. And He will. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and work that great truth into our hearts. That you've given us a new one. A heart that's inclined towards you. Lord, we're so biased. Uh, even against our own selves, we're so biased to run away from you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're a God that desires mercy and not sacrifice. Because that's what we need. We need your covenant love, which comes after us and loves us. Love us. Love us.